Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. Um, we're doing another live taping. It's been a few weeks since we've done one, so we're happy to be back here at Downtown Uncorked in Downtown Bryan, Texas. Historic Downtown Bryan, Texas. Downtown Bryan, Texas, that's right. And we have one of our uh, guests that we've gotten to hang out with before. I think this is maybe a third time that Dr. Robertson has made, oh, a third time that I've interviewed you, but only the second time for this podcast. So. We're uh, excited that he, uh, he's back with us. He uh, recently took over uh, the Mossbacker Institute, which you're going to get to learn a, a little bit about today. And as always, thanks so much for Downtown Cork for hosting, and thanks so much to the Bush School for sponsoring. I think that's all my intro part. So with that, Raymond, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me out. So one of the things that we've tried to do with the podcast this semester is introduce folks to the different research institutes, different outreach institutes we have as part of the Bush School. And uh, you know, we're recently um, named the director of the Mossbacker Institute. So could you tell us a little bit about the Mossbacker Institute and just what it is and its history? And then maybe we could talk about uh, some of the projects you're doing and then maybe a little bit further on some of the directions you're hoping to take it just to give you a preview of the things I'd like to know. Is all that okay with you? Absolutely. It sounds great. So thank you very much for the opportunity. We're very excited about what's going on at the Mossbacker Institute. The Mossbacker Institute, of course, is named after Rob Mossbacker, who is George H.W. Bush's uh, Secretary of Commerce mm -hmm. and played an instrumental role in shaping that administration's trade policy. And when the end of the administration of George H.W. Bush came along. Uh, he wanted to do something to memorialize uh, Rob Mossbacker, and so we started this institute. And the institute was originally focused on trade, economics, and public policy, and I'm the third director now, so I'll be taking up the reins now from Lori Taylor, who was our previous director, and then Jim Griffin, who was the director before that. And each of those directors have had a different focus. So Jim Griffin, of course, had a focus on energy or has a focus still on energy, energy policy. Lori Taylor has a focus on education, and she did a lot in the Institute uh, focusing on education. And my specialty, as you know, as we've talked about here on uh, Bush School Uncorked, is international trade. And that was actually a little bit closer to the heart of uh, Bob Mossbacker, Robert Mossbacker's work. And so we're really happy to bring it back to this focus on international trade. So through the Institute, we're doing a number of exciting things. We basically have three main areas uh, that we focus on in terms of the activities. The activities are supporting research. Uh, we're trying to get people involved as uh, fellows in the Institute. We've been promoting research. We have a takeaway series, which is a policy brief that we publish that features research of people that are affiliated with the Institute and others, other friends. Uh, we also do events, and last month we had two phenomenal events. We had the very conservative economist Ann Kruger, who everyone thought was a raging liberal because <laughs> she was very critical of President Trump's trade policies. And of course, she was speaking from the position of a very conservative economist who believed in very free trade. And then we followed that up with the actual negotiator, of the North American Free Trade Agreement, Jaime Sarapuche, uh, who was the Mexican negotiator. And he came in and we had an outstanding panel, a wonderful discussion about the importance of trade. One of the great things about that event was we actually had video footage of George H.W. Bush actually praising uh, Jaime Sarapuche and his important work in bringing about NAFTA and talking about what an important agreement NAFTA was. So that was just some of the events that we had in February that have been going very well. 
And then the third part, of course, is sponsoring students. We want to get students very much involved. We have an internship program where we support uh, competitively two students who would apply uh, for a summer internship in something engaged in trade policy, in particular, uh, some sort of international trade related organization. And we would support their uh, research and their internship throughout the summer months in between that first and second year here at the, at the Bush School. So those are the three things that we mainly focus on in terms of activities. The three areas uh, that we focus on are the same, same ones I mentioned earlier. So we still focus on energy. We have a very um, alive and important energy program. We still focus on education. So Lori Taylor is still very much involved uh, supporting governance, broadly speaking, but education in particular. We have other people engaged in governance. And then of course, we are still engaged in trade. So we're very excited about uh, developing trade, particularly with Latin America, but also we look at uh, China and other parts of the world. And so trying to promote this vision of, of free and open borders for the prosperity of not just Americans, but also people throughout the world and the benefits that trade brings that recruit both Americans and uh, people in, in other countries, whether it's Europe or uh, Japan or the developing world. So you got really, I mean, uh, a multiple of focus areas and a multiple of different types of activities you do. So you're doing different types of research. Yours truly did a takeaway a couple of years ago, and it was on none of these things. It was on improper payments. Um, and governance. And, and governance. governance. Governance is an important part, yeah, right? Sure, sure. Governance. Um, and then doing, you know, outreach-type education events and then helping facilitate some of the Bush School students. Exactly. Um, which is all, all pretty cool. What uh, Do you have other events plan for the rest of the semester that people should be aware of that are listening that might want to might want to join for an event or anything else in the books already or things you're thinking about? Yeah, so we, we sure do. So we have a, a couple events coming up in April. Uh, we have an education policy research uh, project that's coming up and then we also have something uh, later on in April on, on energy coming in the last week of April as well. Both of those I think are basically lunchtime events and so if y'all are around uh, we'd love to share those details with you. Uh, they're going to be very exciting. All right, very good. So um, let's talk a little bit maybe about what types of uh, what types of takeaways have you been doing? What types of research have you actually been highlighting lately within the Institute? Is that something that you've been doing uh, recently? Oh yeah, of course. No, no, no. We're putting them out at, a, at an increasing rate, I would say. Okay. We've done some wonderful high quality ones. Yours was one of the ones that we uh, talked about even this morning when we were meeting about some of the good ones. We'd like to have you uh, maybe do more of those. Uh, you and Rob Greer, we thought it would be really good to kind of put together. You worked with Rob on the last mm -hmm. one, yep, yep. and uh, we thought that would be great to do a repeat. We also, I've done a couple recently, one on the, um, uh, the USMCA, which is the follow-up agreement to the North American Free Trade Agreement, on sort of the differences between that and NAFTA. Uh, that's been good. Uh, Jim Griffin, again, following up on energy, did a rather critical piece on solar panels and some of the concerns that we should be having about solar panel installation, especially on residential units. Uh, and uh, we also have a new one, our, our newest one is coming out from actually Kent Portney from our um, uh, ISTEP, right? Our Institute uh, for- Science, Technology, and Public Policy. Public Policy. And uh, he's putting one together, I think that's gonna follow up on some of the other research that he's done. They're doing a lot of research there. And I haven't read it yet. I just got the copy uh, earlier today, so I'm looking forward to reading that. So we're actually trying to broaden the base a little bit to try and bring in a number of other people. Uh, in order to kind of get that going, I've actually been very excited about a new program we're implementing, which is our research fellows program, where we're inviting people from, uh, you know, our closest friends, people, and we're going to talk to you about this as well, right, right. Uh, as research fellows to get them 
uh, more engaged in writing takeaways on a more regular basis. So we've already sent out a number of invitations to people in economics, industrial engineering, ag econ, uh, or just some of the ones outside of the Bush School as, long, as well as a number of Bush School people uh, to get them engaged. And so it's going to be broadening out the focus, obviously, with industrial engineering or even in economics. Uh, they do some different types of topics, but our goal really is to try and provide things that are as interesting to the broadest base of students as possible to also get the word out about our research at the Bush School, uh, but also to get students more familiar with some of the research opportunities that we have. Sounds like you have a plan, man. We have a plan. I have a vision. <laughs> I have a vision and a plan. And, and I've only, you know, this is the end of March, so I've technically only been in charge uh, three months, and already I'm starting to get the sense that things are changing quickly, yeah, maybe a little so. too quickly. So, uh, <laughs> But they are definitely changing at a, at a, at a real pace. Well, I think it would be fun to, to partner with. One of the things that I was thinking about getting ready for this event is I've been thing about artificial intelligence and how mm -hmm. technologies affect the, the workforce and actually our next uh, podcast is going to be with Lisa Cobbs out of the history department on a documentary she's doing or she did for PBS we're going to talk about the future of work because one of the things that where this ties in with uh, with free trade is uh, what happens to what happens to jobs when we have free trade and so you know some of the concerns with like NAFTA when you uh, when there were People arguing about uh, whether it's good or bad. One of the one of the claims is that it takes away jobs, right? And we can talk about whether or not that's that's true. But one of the pieces I've been thinking about is the role that automation plays in that, and uh, technology, and what that means in a trade context. So maybe we can get to some of that here in a little bit. But um, I think it'll be a lot of fun to do something for the Mossbacker. So uh, that'd be fantastic. Uh, so maybe we can get something planned. Yeah, we're definitely, your name came up uh, very favorably earlier today, so it's just a matter of us having time to sit down and talking about what that's going to look like going forward. And so I know that uh, Professor Taylor was really interested in, in developing the relationship with her department, folks in, uh, in her department, and also in this governance idea, more broadly speaking. So your original takeaway was under this broad umbrella of governance, and we think that there's a lot of potential there for doing some really high-quality work. So now the uh, podcasts are turning into collaborations. I feel like that's a... Uh... That's a win. I'll sure. learn. Maybe this is interesting. I'm not sure that I was talking about collaborating this is interesting or not. So. <laughs> I can I can hear people turning off their computers. <laughs> I can just hear them in the future turning off their computers. Raymond, talk a little bit about the, the, the research projects that you've developed that are now going to be run through the through the institute. Uh, you, the work you've done on Cuba, some of the other work that you've done that you've initiated since you've come to to uh, to the Bush School. Well, talking about getting people to turn off their computers, uh, people ask me that question. I have a very long list, but part of it, I'm going to compartmentalize it a little bit. So part of it has been uh, building off one of the original takeaways was this idea of whether or not uh, U.S. and Mexican workers are complements or substitutes, and that was something that you were saying that about this debate about jobs in the labor force. And there's been a lot of sense, I think, throughout uh, at least the public and the popular press has been that United States workers compete with Mexican workers per for jobs. Perhaps that's because the president of the United States says it all the time. And, and he has said it all the time, And but, but in a way, the president, to be fair, is, is a very much a mirror of America, and Americans are saying this, and he... More is the pity. It. Yes, <laughs> even more so, perhaps. Uh, but, but so I wanted to test this hypothesis empirically, right? This is a testable hypothesis, and so what I did was I got data from... Uh, the United States and Mexico at the very detailed industry level, and I sort of looked at how 
wages and employment move, and I could get into the empirical details if you want, uh, if you want to really turn people off. But the, the basically the upside is is that before NAFTA, there there was some support for this narrative, right? That that Mexican and U.S. workers were competing for jobs. But actually, the results I've generated really suggest that since NAFTA. Uh, that relationship has changed dramatically, so that there's been a dramatic restructuring of the Mexican economy and a restructuring of the U.S. economy, which could have been painful at times. There was definitely parts of the country that felt this more than others. But now we've basically generated a North American value chain where we're very much integrated in our production process. So when you actually just simply look at the time series of U.S. and Mexican workers, and this is not what the paper is based on, but it's much more sophisticated than that. But if you just look at the time series, you can see very easily that the U.S. and Mexican production workers actually move together through time. It's not like one's rising and the other's falling. It's not like there's a clear X emerging in the graphs. They actually move together through time and they share the same shocks and they actually go through the same type of movements. And that, that is just evidence that suggests that now we're part of this North America, an integrated North America. And this is part of, of this research project that you were trying to get me to talk about. I think that, that's one of the big issues. I may mention this at the talk uh, that uh, the Mossback Institute posted. So I, I got to go to that one, which was a lot of fun. I missed the Kruger talk. Um, but I was at that one, and this was the point he was making, is that when you're you're talking about these economies, you're not, they're not, you can't really talk about them in isolation no. anymore. The, the, the market is North America. I mean, it is very yes. much an integrated uh, integrated market. It had all kinds of different uh, numbers to support that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have another example of a, a research project that I started here that also deals with that. It looks at how are Mexican workers affected by U.S. imports from China. And we looked at one of the more sensitive industries, which is apparel. And one of the things that we find is that when the United States starts importing more clothing from China, that hurts Mexican workers. Wages go down, employment goes down. And that's because the Chinese uh, sub are substitutes for uh, Mexican exports to the U.S. as part of that production process. And I think what people don't really realize is that when we're importing these products from China, uh, that really does affect all of North America, right? Because we're a single production unit. We come back to the same theme. that we're, It's really about North America rather than just the U.S. or the Mexican economy. So we need to start thinking about North America as a single unit. How about the Cuba stuff? So the Cuba stuff is actually super exciting in a number of different ways. So one of the things that we found, uh, so I went to Cuba with uh, Andy Johnson, who is the industrial uh, engineering professor. And there was actually two uh, projects that came out of that. So one of those was uh, historical. So we actually got uh, mill level data while we were in Cuba of the Cuban mills that had amazingly detailed information on the names of the owners and the, Sh and the sugar, mi and sugar the, mills. The sugar mills. So it's mainly focused on sugar. So sugar was Cuba's main export during this time. We visited the Hershey mill. So uh, Hershey's had a big plant and a railroad they put in uh, and their giant mill. So we visited that and there's a Hershey's plantation there. Um, because a lot of the sugar was being developed by chocolatiers yep. from the United States. And so we looked at whether or not uh, foreign investment was more productive than domestic investment in Cuba by looking at mill output uh, between the foreign investors and the domestic investors. Most of the economics literature suggests that foreign investors are much more productive when they go into other countries. And we did not find that. As a matter of fact, we found that the Cuban mills were just as productive as the uh, as the American mills, and this actually shakes up the literature a little bit, right? Because it really calls this bigger paradigm into question. So that was the first thing. The second thing that we found that was pretty interesting is that everybody that we talked to in Cuba kept trying to discourage us from 
focusing on sugar. Sugar is the past. We don't do sugar. Sugar is part of our colonial heritage. It's not something that we do. And then uh, if you try to get sugar export data from Cuba, it's very locked down. So we came about this in another direction. We looked at other countries' imports of Cuban sugar using the ComTrade database. And we found that Cuban sugar exports have been rising dramatically. <laughs> and there's been a big increase in the amount of sugar coming out of Cuba. And different countries have different motivations. So some of the Scandinavian countries are paying huge amounts for Cuban sugar. We think it's probably like an aid. It's probably program. foreign aid. Yeah. So that's like foreign aid. Yeah. Uh, but even so, the Cubans are doing very well in terms of their sugar exports. And this goes against the, the Cuban native uh, themselves about kind of what they're focusing on. Um, so that was pretty interesting. I, I actually have heard your encouragement several times, and, and it's actually my dad also gave me this advice to really start studying the Cuban rum industry, uh, not just because I like rum, uh, which I do quite a bit, but also just because it is fascinating because it's a value added. So they take the, the sugar and they add value to it yeah. as more uh, complex manufacturing, and they're actually really been promoting rum exports and doing a great job. They have some of the best rums in the world. So. Uh, that's something that we might how, look forward to. How, how was, how, did they have stats on, on after the mills were nationalized? What happened, what happened to productivity? Uh, they did not have stats on that. Ah, <laughs> and yeah. uh, everything actually was interesting because the, they did a, a sugar annual yearbook which stopped abruptly in 1959, yeah. and the data just completely got locked down. So yeah. our hope was to get in there and try and make some friends with folks, you know what I mean? And we're yeah, still yeah. working with that because there's, a, there's actually a really robust uh, group of faculty at TAMU who's interested in Cuba. Yeah. So we're trying to work with them to get back into Cuba and try and get some of those historical data. Uh, but we haven't been able to do that yet. But that's uh, any excuse to go back to Cuba, I yeah. think, is a good one. Is it harder now with the Trump administration? The Trump administration made it a lot harder. So actually, when I started this, there was this beautiful window where Obama was opening up relationships yeah. with Cuba. We had an embassy. Was warm and fuzzy. Right. Opening the embassy and, and things reversed dramatically uh, when yeah. the new administration came in, making it a little bit more difficult. Uh, so that that kind of put the damper on it as well. But we, you know, hope springs eternal as, as it does in Cuba. And, and so we share that and we expect to be able to get in there in, in, the, in the medium future. So. So last time we had you on, we talked about USMCA. Yeah. And you had a panel on USMCA. Yes. Should Is there anything since we talked last, which has been a few months now, I think two or three months, has there been any recent developments that you've been following along that would be useful to update listeners that have been following along to the podcast? So, yeah, there's actually two things I think would be fun to share with you. I mean, one of the things that I've been working on uh, since we last chatted was working with one of my students to dive into the U.S. tariff code specifically. And one of the things I think people don't appreciate is that uh, we, we got what we believe to be the actual U.S. tariff schedule for the USMCA, which is basically they have eight-digit product code lines, and so there's like 32,500 of those. Uh, and so we've gone through the 32,500 lines of tariff code. And we've actually compared... Uh, basically the default tariffs, which would be the uh, World Trade Organization most favored nation tariffs, mm -hmm. which is what we'd go to if NAFTA gets right. canceled, and we don't have the USMCA. And, uh, and, and actually those tariffs are relatively low for most products, right? So, but you think about those tariffs as kind of being in the 3 to 4% range, kind of on, as a mode. Obviously, there's some that are a lot higher, and there's a lot of zeros, but kind of as a mode, they're around 3 to 4%, which is pretty low, especially relative to other countries, right. especially developing countries. So the United States generally has pretty low tariffs. Uh, but then, if you look at the NAFTA tariffs, NAFTA moved most of those tariffs 
to zero, specifically for Mexico and our other partners with whom we have trade agreements. So the, the tariffs go basically from three to 4% or whatever down to basically zero for almost everything. And if you look at the, the next step, which would be the USMCA tariff lines going through the 32, whatever, 1,300, 2,500, uh, they all go to zero basically. So in the main tariff codes, basically all the tariffs go straight to zero. So in that sense, it's more liberalizing. But one of the really fun things, and this is fun for a really geeky data guy, <laughs> is that the codes basically start at zero and go up through the first two digits, go from zero, zero up to 98, 99, right? Which yeah. makes sense. So yeah, they, yeah. that's the whole range. And up to about zero to, to 97 at the first two digits, that's where all these tariffs basically go from uh, whatever, very low to zero. The 98 to 99, which is at the very bottom, that's where all the special tariffs are actually uh, listed. And they show that uh, the tariffs above, oh yeah, the tariffs above look like zero, but actually for those categories, it's 100%. Or actually for those categories, it's 55%. So we actually have been trying to get through the 98 and 99s to bring them back up into the regular uh, code to actually see what the actual tariffs are. And what we found is that they really are like 50%, 100% tariffs on a lot of things we were looking at. Uh, they're the ones you're familiar with when you're following the news. Steel, washing machines, solar panels. But there's also some other things. Yarns, fabrics also have really high protection that have this complex web of both quota, which is quantitative required mm. restrictions, and tariffs added on. So part is of that, Is that new with USMCA? No, it's actually not unique to USMCA at all. Mm -hmm. So what's been happening is... Uh, outside of the USMCA, as you know, and you've talked about this, but the Trump administration has been imposing all of these tariffs, broadly speaking, on all of our trading partners. And the size of those tariffs is so large compared to the USMCA that it's almost like, oh yeah, we're going to have the USMCA, which reduces these tariffs to zero, but that's almost irrelevant compared to these huge tariffs that are being imposed so, by so the, the administration. So the huge tariffs are... Are kind of global tariffs they're not specific to mexico necessarily but that's exactly the problem right so mexico and canada are both operating under the assumption that if we get the usmca we're going to remove these right tariffs. right right and trump administration is like maybe we will maybe we will maybe yeah, we maybe won't maybe we won't i mean they were kind of using them as an incentive to get canada and mexico to the negotiating table to get the changes in the usmca that right. they wanted right. but then once the those agreements were finalized they didn't remove the tariffs as they expected. So the tariffs stayed in place. And so Mexico and Canada, and Canada's more upset about this for some reason than Mexico, but Canada's really got their ire up about this. I think they should. Um, and they're saying, you know, wait a minute. We, we thought that this would be a, a result of, of the USMCA. Uh, it, it wasn't. So, so, so if, if USMCA gets ratified, yeah. does that mean that the agreement then supersedes these individual tariffs no. that they're No. No, no, that's the point, is that it does not. And right now, we, we have NAFTA. NAFTA should supersede yeah. these other tariffs. Right. But the point was that the Trump administration circumvented all the trade agreements and started imposing by these very large By declaring tariffs. national security. Or as one, yes, right. as one, as national security is one of them, and there was a couple others, anti-dumping provisions, other temporary mm -hmm. trade barriers were others. And so, yeah, he, he completely circumvented the normal trade agreement process. And that's the real problem, is it does does USMCA really even matter? I mean, there's a couple provisions that are very different in the USMCA than NAFTA, which are not tariff related, which are linked to, you could argue, more protectionism. The, the wage provision and the mm. rules of origin provisions are the ones we think about. But, you know, I think they're completely trumped 
uh, by these other tariffs. I mean, they're kind of overwhelmed by these other tariffs. And so that's where the real action needs to be. It was so much better that you put Trump in quotes. In quotes, air quotes, which, air which, quotes, which, you can't which see. everyone, of course, on the on the, po- the listening to the podcast will appreciate. Yes. Uh, so uh, I, I, that's yours. Yeah, I shouldn't drink your water. I don't suppose. Um, I want to ask a, a, a different question that's related to trade, but isn't about anything, any of these specific cases, and ask what are the what's the argument for tariffs? So. Uh, Greg mentions national security, and one of the things that you were mentioning is how the Trump administration is kind of circumventing the free trade agreements. So, why? What, I mean, other than political reasons, what's the what are the arguments from an economic standpoint for tariffs? Like, when are they when are they justified, and when is it useful? Well, you're kind of asking me to turn in my membership card to the International Economics Association. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, basically, all international economists well, are going to argue. I'll, 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 I'll give you the I'll give you the historical case. Go back and read Alexander Hamilton's first report to the Congress on manufacturers. Right, the United States policy was we're going to have high tariffs on manufactured imports because we want to develop our own industries. That was the Hamiltonian plan to develop the United States as a manufacturing power. And and we basically followed that plan for a while. I mean, the agricultural exporters of the South wanted low tariffs. The industrial manufacturers of the North wanted high tariffs. This is, you know, if, if you're looking for that alternative theory of the Civil War, right, that, oh, it wasn't about slavery, it was about other things, People do point to this, the, 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 the tariff debate, which was for, I think, a lot of, of, well, certainly for the first half of the 19th century in the United States was one of the two major economic debates. The other one was the national bank debate, right? Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, the historical mm-hmm. argument for, for tariffs is protecting infant industries. And that was, that was part of the World Bank's development plan in the 60s when Robert McNamara ran the World Bank. The World Bank encouraged third world countries to have high tariffs so they could all develop their own steel industry and, and that. It, I think it proved to be not nearly as effective in increasing uh, uh, overall global welfare as, as more open trade, but that was the, that was the argument for, for tariffs. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's absolutely right and fair. And I think the, to be fair about it, to be fair about it, I think... If you look just past the United States and past the World Bank, a lot of times, even if you look at the development policies uh, of Asia, specifically South Asia, East Asia, then you look at Africa and Latin America, there was actually two very different experiences with these protectionist tariffs. All of these regions actually had pretty high protectionism in order to develop their domestic industries, right? And uh, the big difference was that East Asia, which was pushing more of a, a trade-based... Export-led growth. It was export-led yeah. growth. So it wasn't about import freedom, right? right? Reducing import barriers. They actually had pretty significant import barriers, but they were promoting exports. Right. And that was the real difference. So it was trade through growth, but it was trade through exports rather than trade through free imports, right? And so to the extent that we look at the United States and you look at uh, England to some degree, but if you look at you know Japan, Korea, uh, China... You know, these are examples, and there's a number of others, but these are examples of countries that had tariffs to protect their domestic industry and foster them. 
To be fair, though, on the other side of that coin is that uh, Africa, South Asia, mainly India, and then you look at Latin America, also followed the same policy of very high import protections, and it was not as successful, right? So once they have a smaller economy, like Costa Rica or you know, Central America, you don't have enough domestic market size to really foster domestic industry. And even if the state isn't putting in a lot of money as it was, uh, it's not enough to really industrialize, well, right? Well, of course, India does have a big enough market, and they, but but they couldn't use this infant industry uh, uh, policy to 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 launch, you right. know, economic growth takeoff and, and productivity right. increases. They needed to to liberalize their economy and and open up to more to world trade, and that was the I mean that at least is is the you know the the shorthand version of the of. Indian economic growth in the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think India is now starting to realize more of the value of exports, whether it's yeah. services or these other industries. Yeah. And that's one of the things that actually had a new uh, book that we just published right. this year with the World Bank um, that argues exactly that, is that now that there's uh, actually labor market benefits in terms of higher wages and jobs and moving people out of the informal sector that are linked directly to exports, and that's what our results show. And so we actually shared that widely in India, and you saw a long list of media hits uh, in India and Sri Lanka and uh, where they were, the book was being promoted. But, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that I think Asia, South Asia in particular, is still wrestling with, and I think they're moving in that direction for sure. So another one for you. One of the things that, uh, that President Trump talked about in the campaign and has continued to talk about is, is trade deficit, the trade deficit with China, for example. And one of the things that was in the news a couple weeks ago is that uh, with all the, with, with everything going on, the trade deficit's actually gotten worse, setting records for trade deficit. So maybe, I was wondering if you might uh, talk about what a trade deficit is and if that matters. Um, and should that be something we should be basing policy around, particularly with a large trading partner like China? Yeah, there's a little bit more heterogeneity, I think, in this, in this debate. There's some people who would argue that trade deficits, you shouldn't worry about them at all. Uh, there's other people that think about them as very dangerous to the, to the country. Uh, one of the things that I teach in my Global Econ class is how trade deficits are actually determined. I think people have a very misguided notion that they're linked to trade agreements and tariffs. I really loved Jaime Serapuche's point, which I hadn't quite seen put so eloquently as when he put it. But if you look at, uh, we have countries, all the countries in the world that we're trading with, there's some that have trade agreements and there's some that do not have trade agreements. And our largest trade deficits are the ones with whom we do not have a trade agreement. So China. With, in particular, China. We don't have a trade agreement with China. China's last on our list of countries with whom we're going to have a trade agreement. Which is, we just so, have WTO. Right. Now we have the WTO, but that's not... Right. It's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a specific trade agreement. Exactly. That's a global... So it doesn't... It's not linked to trade policy. We'll and if you increase tariffs, in the short run, you might see a little bump because your imports might go down. And we have seen imports of steel and other things go down a lot. Uh, but in the longer run, the real mechanism of the trade deficit, which you asked for the definition, is just exports minus imports. So it's what we export minus what we import. And because we import so much more than what we export, we get a negative number when we subtract the imports from the exports. And that's the trade deficit is that negative number. And uh, you impose these tariffs and it doesn't really 
have the effect in the long run because the real cause of that trade deficit is actually the capital account. It's international borrowing and lending. So I did another takeaway through the Mossbacher Institute, which explains that if you, if you raise these tariffs, you're never going to really solve the trade deficit. And the trade deficits, I would argue, as I did through the takeaway, which I published, and also Jaime Sarapuche also mentioned this point. It's not just me. It's well known among economists. But what's happened to U.S. borrowing since Trump came into power? It's increased sharply. And because, we, of, because of tax cuts. Because of the tax cuts. So the United States federal government is borrowing more money. Where do they borrow that money from? They borrow it from China. That basically raises the demand for the dollar, and it makes Chinese goods cheaper and makes the trade deficit worse. <laughs> and so the whole idea, right, of, of that tariffs are going to solve this problem is not very effective. What we really need to be doing is thinking about fiscal responsibility and balancing our budget and reducing our borrowing. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why reducing our borrowing would be a good idea, but that is one of them, is we really want to address the trade deficit. Maybe not balancing the budget. That, that, that's, a, that's a bugaboo, but maybe reducing the, 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 the deficit. If we uh, reduce the deficit, we're moving in the direction advocated by both of us. Right. <laughs> we would agree on that. Yeah. So any move yeah. in that direction, we would agree would yes. be good. So, as, lo- as long as it's done through the right mechanisms. Sure, sure, sure. So you don't want to slash all X funding or whatever. Right, right. I mean, you don't want to slash government spending to to, to be, causes that, that to people who need it and to investment. Yeah, there's I a mean, whole bunch of ways that it could be done well and things that, yeah, there's, and we could Right, we could, we, yeah, maybe, maybe not cutting taxes during a, a rising oh, economy. Yeah, yeah boom. Yeah. But, also, but isn't that the other reason that, that we're, we're, the trade deficit went up is the American economy uh, in the last year and a half was growing. And so people are buying more stuff. Sure. You go I to mean, Walmart and buy stuff, you're, you're adding to the trade deficit. Yeah, that's definitely true. So American consumers are definitely uh, responsible for a lot of the trade deficit. Mm-hmm. But arguably, everything comes down to prices yeah. for trade economists and economists and, and other folks. And so why are these goods cheaper? Why are we buy, you know, I mean, our income's going up, but also the price of these things are looking relatively cheaper as well because of these. Because changes. the dollar is, is the dollar. stronger. You know, and I also would like to point out just as a side note that I think is very fun is that, you know, Trump really was upset about uh, the trade deficit with Mexico. And this is a great example of how this works. And, and so he said, you know, we really are upset about Mexico and we're upset about this trade deficit with Mexico. And so he said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna revoke NAFTA because that's the cause. And this talk of revoking NAFTA created a whole lot of instability and insecurity within Mexico, and especially with Mexican investors, and reduced the value of the Mexican peso, which made Mexican goods much cheaper, which then made it our trade deficit much larger. <laughs> right? So it's exactly these types of comments that made the trade deficit worse through the mechanism of the exchange rate. So understanding how the exchange rate relates to these trade deficits is absolutely fundamental. That's why we're teaching it in trade policy tomorrow or Thursday. And that's why we're teaching that as part of fundamentals in the global economy. So I have a question about all this. What does it have to do with the Mueller report? <laughs> you snuck it in there. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you opine on the Mueller report. Uh, no, I, I, I just... Has to uh, do something with uncertainty? No, I, I, yeah, uncertainties, <laughs> uncertainties, and the, the 18th century economic theories that our president believes in and, and has nothing to do with the Mueller report. This is the only podcast being done during the, the week of, of uh, the last week of March that will not discuss the Mueller report. Unless we have questions from the 
yeah, from the audience, and, 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 you know, we're, we're getting to that time. <laughs> we are at that time, and it's hard to top, uh, I think, Raymond's uh, passionate examples of uh, misguided uh, policy claims. So with that, we do have about 15 more minutes available in our space, and we have a nice uh, crowd with us today. So we'll turn it over to you. Does anyone have questions for the panel? Yes. So, in my understanding, you mentioned some synchronized characteristics between United United States economy and Mexican economy, and you say you mentioned about the tariffs. So, when we are thinking about those characteristics as an explanatory perspective, and what could be um, impacts of like setting wars on the border between United States and Mexico could be impacting on the United States economy. So, I'm saying. In other words, what could be the implications of the, the current the border policy on the United States economy? That's a great question. I think that is the question we should be asking ourselves when we're thinking about this policy. So question I, about border, in case border in case the mic didn't pick it up, about right, so border the policy. Is, we're thinking about these border policies with Mexico. How are these border policies, given the fact that the economies are integrated, how will this affect the U.S. economy? And it's going to affect the economy, I think, in two important ways. We've already seen both of these. One of these is that the way to think about uh, goods coming in from Mexico, which is what we're trying to reduce, are actually, well, think about them as in two categories. So one is that there are consumption goods. So avocados, right? So avocados are a great example. We love guacamole, right? So we speak in... for yourself. I actually don't like guacamole. What? You're like the only person in Texas what? that doesn't like guacamole. I don't like guacamole. I need, a, I need a new co-host. But there's, do you like tomatoes? Yes. Okay, so we're bringing in lots of tomatoes. Okay. Forget the avocado. Okay. Forget, let's go red instead of green. There we go. So, right, so we're bringing, but, but when you add these barriers, it raises the prices to consumers and then makes the consumers then worse off, we're consuming less and we're less happy because tomatoes are good for all kinds of reasons, uh, healthy and, and others. Although but, I would be happy with fewer avocados. Okay, but more tomatoes. Yes, I want more, more tomatoes. tomatoes. So tomatoes, yeah. actually, we bring in a lot of tomatoes. We bring in uh, strawberries, there's lettuce, there's a whole bunch of other things that are good, healthy foods bringing in from Mexico. So that's consumption. Avocados aren't that healthy. They're actually very high in cholesterol. But go ahead, but please. Please, get, please continue. Good oils and bad oils. Please continue. There's good fats and bad fats. Yeah. Um, I'm not a dietitian. I should be talking about the yeah. benefits of avocado, but I know that they're delicious on chips. Um, so, but the second one is, I think when you really think about our trade with Mexico, you really should be thinking about inputs, right? So, what these are these are inputs in the production that that Americans use. So, when you start imposing these barriers between the United States and Mexico, you're raising the cost of U.S. production. And when you raise the cost of U.S. production, firms don't want to hire as many people, they have to substitute lower wages to pay for the higher costs, and so it actually is interrupting uh, production here in the United States, and nowhere in the United States is this more relevant than Texas. Texas, the Texas economy is extremely reliant on the Mexican economy and integrated with the Mexican economy. And so it actually puts the Texas economy at risk. That's why you see both Republicans and right, Democrats. Right, if you, if you push them, even the Republican uh, congressmen and women in Texas are not in favor of, of a border wall. No. I mean, that's, that's people in Michigan and Ohio. Yes. Uh, nobody in Texas in an elected position, as far as I can tell, 
is supportive of a, of, of a big, beautiful wall that cuts us off from Mexico. And who should you trust about Mexican policy? The Texans or somebody in the Northeast? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, who knows? Who's on the front line? Who knows the best? The people that know the best are saying, no, 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 integration is better for us. Trade is better for us. That's the way we should go. We should not be putting in these walls. Those things are just better in Texas. Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> that goes without saying. Any other questions? So when you were discussing tariffs, it seems that there have been some cases in history where uh, tariffs have helped countries to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and some cases where tariffs have just kept them mired as they were. Uh, has there been much research into why they work sometimes and why they don't, and what the differences are or anything? So, so the question was, uh, uh, we had mentioned that sometimes tariffs have helped develop some local economies, and what are the conditions under which it has been helpful versus the conditions in which it hasn't? Yeah, so there's there's two main answers to that question. And I would like to point out, you know, that uh, in northern Minnesota, for example, where they're producing inputs into steel, taconite in particular, the mines are opening up and uh, more jobs are being created and there has been an increase uh, in steel-related employment. I think it's fair to admit that. So in that sense, right, it's kind of bolstering it. But I think the United States is not at that point of industrial development where it needs tariffs to promote industry. Our growth industries are in knowledge and innovation and tech, and we don't need tariffs to protect ourselves. Entertainment. Uh, entertainment, right? We don't need tariffs. To we, need in, we need intellectual property rights. Yeah, no, but, well... So Mickey Mouse can't be stolen in China. We could debate that, I yeah. guess. I'm not, but, but to answer your question specifically, right, when does it work and when does it not work, I think a big part of the answer comes down to institutions, right? It's how well uh, you can basically take advantage of that temporary boost you get from a tariff to foster investment. And investment requires good institutions, good courts that basically are protecting property rights, good dispute resolution in the courts. Also, it's important to have, you know, good... Um, you know, education and macroeconomic stability. So the places where they didn't have these other conditions, uh, tariffs did not work. They weren't sufficient. They're not a sufficient condition for development. I'm not even sure they're necessary, but they were helpful in some of those cases. But, this, but there's another thing, right, uh, that you mentioned that I think it's important to... I'm not an economist, but I occasionally play one in the classroom. Uh, and on the, podcasts. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the countries that use tariffs to develop industry, but then subjected that in, those industries to international competition, right? It, it, though, that was the East Asia model, right? That was the Asian economic miracle model, is that you're, you're going to do export-led growth and, and you're going to help these industries get started, but then you're going to subject them to international competition. In third markets, not yeah, that, no, not market. not in your domestic market, right. but in third markets. In third markets, and if you if you were encouraging production for export, and then throwing these people, these companies out on the world market and saying compete, compete against everybody, uh, that was a very different strategy than encouraging the development of domestic industry for domestic consumption. That's absolutely right. And, and where where those industries were completely protected from competition. Right and 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 tended to, I can I can tell stories about the part of the world that that I study in the Middle East where those industries became welfare right. organizations and the government said well you have to hire more people well it's not productive we don't care hire more people and you have these large industries 
that uh, were completely focused on the domestic market and completely and became completely unproductive. Well, it's also what happened in India. That's right. What happened I have, in it's Latin what America happened in yeah, well. yeah, I mean, yeah. I actually did a study when I was in graduate school on sugar mills. And, ah, uh, back to the sugar mills. It was back to sugar. I'm a big fan of sugar, even yeah, though it's yeah. so unhealthy, but uh, a big fan of sugar. Except in Rome, and then it's all right. Exactly. Yeah. But in moderation, everything is Yes, good. indeed. Um, but the, uh, in, the, in the sugar mills, what they would do is they, they kept switching from public to private to private to public, and they kept going back and forth. And so I was trying to estimate these production function coefficients, like the contribution of labor to the output of sugar. And labor contributes nothing to the output of sugar at the mill level. Yeah, yeah. And so they would use that. When it became public, employment would just increase we, dramatically yep, because yep. exactly what you're saying, right? The government would so use You have it four as, people to watch the machine instead of one. Exactly. Or 50. You're 50 people. Yeah. <laughs> 50 to watch the machine. Yeah. Exactly. So it really involves a lot of these other conditions. Great question, though. I think we have time for maybe one more if anyone in the audience has any remaining questions. Nothing about the Mueller report? Now, I, I guess thinking about our exports being largely innovation, knowledge, entertainment, etc., is is there a need to put in government policies to protect local manufacturing and other things because our reliance is increasingly moving towards international um, for? Food, clothing, etc. Is there is there a foreseeable future that we should be trying to protect and innovate and well, kind of within the nation? Or? So, so yeah. the question was given our the our comment about some of our experts being uh, knowledge and uh, technology and entertainment. Is there then a need to try to protect some of our domestic industries with tariffs? Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, one thing just as a preface to what will be a more intelligent answer from. Professor Robertson, we, we left out one of the big exports in America's agriculture. We, 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 we are enormous agricultural exporters. And when the Chinese wanted to hit us back for, for uh, the tariffs that President Trump put on, they hit, they hit at agricultural exports. So, so we, are, we, we do export all of these high-tech things and, and intellectual property like entertainment and all, but we also export a hell of a lot of pork and, and, and soybeans and, and, you know, actual products, mm -hmm. agricultural products that people eat. Yeah, and those areas that specifically exported to China, again, I'm thinking of, you know, North Dakota uh, and Minnesota as well, that, that they got hit especially hard. Iowa. Iowa. They got hit very, very hard by that. So, I mean, should we, you know, be protecting these manufacturing? I, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's a great question because I think it cuts at the heart of, you know, what should our policies be? My personal opinion is that, I mean, who should we really care about? I mean, I think we need to be caring about the workers. And one of the big problems that we've seen in the last, you know, 50 years, and you can talk to all sorts of people who will all agree on this now, is that the United States did not take care of the workers who were adversely affected by trade. So, you know, I would like to think that as an American, I believe in sort of this Reagan exceptionalism, you know what I mean? Like, I think we are special and I think we're great at what we do. And I think putting tariffs to protect our industries is basically admitting we can't compete, which is so un-American to me. That's ridiculous. We can compete. We need to be able to compete to the world. But some people are going to be adversely affected, but it's going to be the workers, right? So what we need is good policies to be put in place to take care of these workers that lose their jobs 
because of trade or whatever automation or automation or which or whatever, is right? actually so a how, larger number of workers right, in trade it's, it's a question of social insurance right so how do we best design an effective efficient low-cost social insurance program that's going to take care of the people who bear the brunt of these costs of opening up to trade or whatever and then let the entrepreneurs compete in the way that they best know how right by finding the best way to do this through cost effectiveness or whatever right so i think that would be a much better way to go than using tariffs to try and protect our industries. Increase our productivity. Yeah. And then have a rational tax system that can be used to help to fund these kinds of social safety network and and worker transition programs yep. that uh, would be a lot better than than uh, you know protecting the blacksmiths because you know Don't technolo use technological change <laughs> is happening and you know we'd have blacksmiths on every on, on, in every block and they wouldn't have anything to do. Right. Well, we're at almost the hour mark, and we've uh, covered plenty of topics and got multiple questions from the crowd, so I think we'll call it a wrap today. Thank you so much uh, to the audience for being here and for your questions. Thank you so much, Raymond, for being with us My again. Pleasure. It's always a, always a treat, and thanks one more time to both uh, Downtown Uncorked for hosting us and to the Bush School for sponsoring. And we'll be reaching back out and having a podcast in uh, ne next week. Uh, actually, the next two weeks, we have live recordings next Tuesday here at Downtown Uncorked and then the following Wednesday, if you're interested in joining us. Both, both at Uncorked. Both at Uncorked. One on artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and the changing nature of work, which mm -hmm. is exactly what we ended up talking about here. And then uh, the second one with our colleague Rick Owan. Oh, and that first one with uh, Professor Lisa Cobbs mm -hmm. from the History Department at Texas A&M, and then with our colleague Greco Wong, who's going to talk about some of her work on rebel governance. Yeah, so it should be interesting. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for being with us today.